All right, welcome to episode 557. Tonight we're talking Green Tree Pythons with David Brahms of the Reptile Perch, formerly Specialty Enclosure Designs. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh man. I'm I'm That's like, exactly why I changed the name. <laughs> much better. Much better. I like it. So, uh, Specialty Enclosure Designs is the former name. Reptile Perch is the new one. Love yep. the. The logo and everything you got going on. Um, we're gonna Owen could be here tonight. He had some things he had to take care of, so I got my uh, protege over here on the side, the man that will take over the NPR network one day. Lucas Lee is here with us. I don't know about all that, but <laughs> hey, happy to be here. Yeah. You want to go another eleven years with the uh, you know keeping the show going? Come on, man. Uh, it depends. It depends <laughs> if Owen is willing to do it too. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Um. But uh, one thing I wanted to do, uh, shout out real quick before we get into it with David is um, we were on the Retic Lounge podcast and uh, we had a great time talking with those guys. Um, if you haven't heard um, the Retic Lounge and you're into Retics or think want to learn about Retics, you should check it out. They go off topic now a little bit now that they're starting to branch out a bit. But great guys. They kind of remind me of uh, NPR in the early days, and but they're just focused on Retics. So um, it's it's a show that's always in my queue, so it's always good to go. But I don't know. Did you have anything you want to hit on, Lucas, before we jump in? No, I'm really excited to talk uh, magic green snakes on a stick with uh, <laughs> the man himself. Okay. So how you been, David? How, how I've been you? great. Yeah. yeah that's Super good. busy, just like everybody else, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. It never stops. No. <laughs> only seems like it's getting worse, but anyway. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. So I thought we would talk about Matacquari green trees is um so like your collection what would you say percentage wise is manaquaries um let me think of my adults it's probably almost half maybe a little less than half of okay. my adult collection that's right now my adults i think i'm running or i have about 36 uh animals okay. and then uh then if you include the babies that I'm raising up, there's probably another 35 there that I'm raising okay. up. Um, so wow. yeah, a decent amount are manaquari. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And then those that aren't like straight manaquari, they're heavily influenced with manaquari. They're, mm -hmm. you know, they're crosses, but you know, there's a lot of manaquari on both sides. So, so when we talk manaquari is, is do we, well, let me ask this. Do you consider um, the Cyclops mountain stuff similar, the same? Like where – don't they usually get lumped in together? Well, I mean, Manaquari falls under the, the Pulker uh, subspecies, right? right. And um, the animal, you know, that particular subspecies comes from the Bird's Head Peninsula of Papua New Guinea. Uh -huh. And so you've got um, localities like – Sarong, Manaquari, Arfak Mountain. Um, those are the types of animals that are typically found there. Um, the, uh, the Cyclops animals um, have a very distinct look uh, from Manaquari. You can typically, you know, uh, parse them out pretty easily just based on their phenotype. Um, the Manaquari, um, if you're if you're trying to differentiate them from the other subspecies, they tend uh -huh. to be on the smaller side. Um, the uh, 
when they're babies, uh, the pulker and the viridus only have a single uh, bar that runs through the eye itself. Whereas okay. uh, the other subspecies, like uh, the Azuria, uh, Azuria, like Biox, uh-huh. and all the others, they're they're going to have three, uh, and it's more pronounced on the yellow babies and the red. It's a lot easier to see that. And then as they get older, um, it becomes a lot less um, pronounced, so it's not as easy to see that. It's really only when they're really little. Okay. Uh, the Manaquari That's a really also interesting one. <laughs> yeah, the Manaquari also have a. Um, a jet black tail, um, and whereas the you know the other uh, animals that come from the other part of the the main part of the island, uh, the subspecies I, I forget how to pronounce it, but it's like Uterensis or something like that. They generally have like a white tail or a green tail, um, and then the other. Uh, thing that you tend to notice with the manaquari is the particularly with the the red babies and the the adults that were red babies um the blue dorsal markings um uh-huh. are very very they tend to be very sharp uh triangles like shark's teeth whereas the other localities tend to be more rounded off uh, on that triangle so like biox and and jayapura and the other localities they don't have that really nice crisp sharp um uh, triangle that you can see uh, that runs along the dorsal okay cool i wonder why their tail is black as composed to the i mean i would imagine it has it's all all caught luring, you know yeah When when they're babies they're you know they're eating uh small lizards primarily and so you know uh i don't know why one one subspecies has a different color versus the other it must be the prey that you know they're selecting for in those areas tends to go for dark versus light or or something like that would be my guess yeah yeah that's kind of where i was going but that's the thing that fascinates me with like learning about the water you know like the natural history of of these snakes we keep like these little details and like how they fit into their yeah you know survival i guess if you will yeah yeah it's cool how did the uh proportion of the green trees that you're keeping end up being so heavily manicori was that kind of pre uh you know meditated or or did you start keeping them and just realize you liked them more than the others as you went or how did that go yeah, when I first started getting into green trees, I the 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 look that really drew me in was just the classic yellow baby um sarong manaquari type. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the the yellow animals when they grow up, the blue oftentimes along that dorsal tends to be a, a little more vibrant it can mm-hmm. be than what appears on red babies. And uh so that was originally what drew me in and then once I started looking around and and building a collection um, I don't know what it was specifically, but I just, I really liked the look of the Manaquari and, uh, I just started grabbing individuals one at a time, whatever I could find them. And, uh, and I just figured, you know, not a lot of people were focusing on locality specific projects. So I figured that might be a good thing to do just to differentiate a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that turned out to be a good move because Manaquari, you just can't really get them. Uh, yeah. currently, and I don't know how it's going to be going forward that may change, but at least for now in the last, um, gosh, I don't know, five, six years, they're really non-existent, uh, in terms of imports. Um, so yeah, I feel fortunate. I was able to collect a, enough of them to get a, a project going and, and, you know, that's been my focus since. Awesome. 
That's really cool. Yeah, the, the, I like I like the uh, the the blue um, with the green is yeah. really nice. I bet you that pops in the sun like whew. it's it's really nice, and that's one of the things that I really enjoy working with them is because the the manaquari or the pulker animals in general uh, are known for having really nice blue dorsal markings, but they also have a lot of nice blue wash that uh, can mm. come out uh, in the, the flanks and, and that sort of thing. And, and, you know, as you're reproducing them, you'll get individuals that pop out that have an extraordinary amount of, of blue in them. So that's really where I'm putting my focus now is just trying to see if I can refine that more, uh, as I'm able to produce more. Mm. Yeah. That's interesting. What's their temperament like, as opposed to, you know, like they say, in my experience, Beox are usually a little bit nippier a ruse yeah. a little bit chill. Yeah, I I think they're they're in my opinion they're all pretty much the same. It doesn't matter what <laughs> locality you're talking about. Right. Um particularly captive born individuals, they're they're almost all dog tamed during the day. And then when the lights go out, it's anybody's game. So, <laughs> you know, it sounds like a lot of carpet pythons. Right. Yeah. They're, they're really not any different. Um, so, you know, when, when it comes to dealing with them, um, you just try and time it so that if you have to do husbandry and things like that, you do it during the day uh-huh. and then, uh, you know, feed them at night, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, I, I tend to, my philosophy with keeping these, I treat them more like tropical fish than I do other pets, you know, their hands off. I really like looking at them, but I don't like holding them and touching them. And I think that really plays into being successful with being able to reproduce them on a regular basis. Mm, yeah. Um, so yeah, I kind of think like us, like really, I, I say this with all love. It's like us, re- us, the real hardcore snake nerds, if you will are like more hands off yep. um, type of approach, you know, like, yep. yeah, I don't need, I don't need yeah. to hold them. It's this, that no. hasn't, it's never my attraction. When I love you know looking that it's, at them, you know? Yeah. When you, when you really realize that it's working against your, your interests and the animals in terms of stressing them out, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it kind of gets hard yeah. to start to justify it after a while. Yep. yep. Yeah. I even feel that way when I'm herping. Like I don't have to touch it, you know. I don't yep. have to. It's I'm just happy seeing it. Like, yep, you know, doing its thing. They're so, really cool to look at. Yeah, you know? yeah, heck yeah. One day I'll get to see a green tree in the wild. Definitely not yeah. a manaquari, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, well, I tell you what, I would love to go to Papua New Guinea if you know if it wasn't so risky. Um, people do it, but yeah, it's a risk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you look on the government's uh, website and it says, do not go here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's probably best to stay away. Yeah. Um, so what's Although, your, I'll tell you what, with Dan yeah. O'Leary being over there, you know, I, I would imagine he, I think he was talking at one point of doing uh, like ecotourism in, in Papua New Guinea and things like that. And that would be the perfect person to hook up with. Yeah. Go yeah. He looks like somewhere. the rock. Yeah. Right. <laughs> hide, hide behind his left arm. <laughs> Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that I would go on because I would feel like <laughs> you would feel like a little more comfortable that yeah. like, who you're going with has guides and people he knows the area. Know. Yeah, 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 yeah. That that I would do, but yeah, I wouldn't fly there with Mister Stone. <laughs> <laughs> um, Although he has rock in his name, he is not true. like the rock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um. Do you have, um, are, are you looking for in your group that you have, is it all the same type of look that you're going for? Did you handpick these animals or is it just you sort of 
have different projects that you're working on? I know you said about the blue and whatnot, but is there any other thing you're doing? So with the Man Quarry, um, their availability wasn't super big at the time when I was trying to get individuals. So I mm-hmm. grabbed whatever I could get my hands on at yeah. the time. Right. And uh, typically, what's that? Was it a lot of imported animals? Yeah. I, all of my animals mm-hmm. are uh, imported from uh, Bushmaster as babies when I got cool. them. Right. Yep. And I've, I've raised them up since then. Okay. Yep. And uh, phenotypically, um, they – there's some, you know, subtle differences between them, um, mm-hmm. between all of them. Uh, but what's interesting is, you know, when you start pairing them and, and you're reproducing them, then that's when the magic seems to really happen. And you can start, uh, you know, uh, withhold, you know, holding back animals that you really know are going to turn out to be something special. So uh, that's kind of what I've been doing. Uh, okay. I've been able to get some clutches out of these, just holding things back and, and um, getting them going. Has there been one that you let go that you see somebody post up and you're like, <laughs> damn, yeah. why didn't I keep that one? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have um, a couple animals that I were some of the first ones that I got when I got into the hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are predominantly Manaquari. They they have the Prada Manaquari line in, in their okay. lineage. So I've got that's the, what I was thinking about when I said Cyclops Mountain. It was Prada. My bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, the uh, the male is a uh, a mix between a Prada Manaquari and a Cyclops Mountain, and then okay. the female is also a Prada Manaquari, but she also has um, the uh, Ophiological Services High Yellow and okay. um, some Vinsky blood in her too. And when nice. I I paired them, uh, you know, I really it was my first go around uh pretty much with, mm-hmm. with reproducing these guys so i didn't really have a plan other than that they both looked like really nice uh, adult animals and and uh i figured it'd, it'd be good to pair them together and specifically since they had that prada man aquarium on both sides it would be good to combine them back together and see see what comes out and uh of that clutch um it was a really good pairing because i've had uh, multiple individuals come out of that where they're, you know, pretty much uh, uh, a very uh, nice aqua blue or like a, uh, a seafoam green blue yeah. or, you know, that Ooh. sort of thing. So they came up with really high blue percentage nice. out of them. I'm and, looking at Mako here on the screen behind yep. me. And that, that is a crazy look with this, yep. the blue. Yep, that's the dam, and uh, the sire is uh, uh, Dr. Jones, is what I yeah. call him. And um, <laughs> yeah, I had some really nice animals pop out of there, and I sold some of them out of that first clutch before they changed. So I had no idea what was going to result from it. And turns out, you know, uh, at least one or two of them turned out to be, you know, really high blue snakes. And uh, so I, you know, really regretted letting that go and going forward. You know, I have a much better idea as to what I'm looking at too, in terms of you know, what the babies are and which ones show the most potential. So, yeah, that must be a little bit of a challenge, right? I mean, selecting yeah. holdbacks yeah. before they yeah. are two years old. <laughs> like, yeah, that's the thing with green trees is uh, you know a lot of times it's a roll of the dice. You don't know mm-hmm. what you're going to get from a pairing, but luckily with that specific pairing, I I've been able to do it multiple times. And the results have been very repeatable. And now I know exactly what to look for in the babies uh, that have really high potential. And it's it's held true to that each yeah. time. But, you know, if you're pairing animals together for the first time, it's a crapshoot. You have yeah. no idea what's going to yeah. come out of that. So, 
that is fun and also yeah. not fun at the same time. Yeah. You know? It's mostly fun, though. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Even though I let one go that turned out to be a blue snake, I, I'm okay with it. I made more that looked just as nice, you know? Yeah, I um, always looked at that as like, okay, one got away, yeah. but now somebody's going to advertise that for you constantly. Yep. You know, exactly. they're just going to price right. it up. It becomes their pride and joy. Right. They're gonna, <laughs> exactly. Who produced that? Yeah. David yep. Brahms. Oh, I got to hit him up. <laughs> yeah. That's embracing good. myself for when that happens with last year's Wilma's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Should have kept more. <laughs> so what's their uh, ontogenic color change? Like I know some are extreme, some are not, ex- you know, so extreme depending on locality. What's, what's it, what's it like? Yeah. For them? So they're, um, uh, they're, I guess you would consider them a rapid, uh, color change Okay. versus like Bioc, which has a very prolonged <laughs> color change that can take yeah. up to a few years to complete. Right. Um, these guys generally when they're roughly about a year old is when they'll, when they'll do the change. Okay. And it's not as crazy and wacky, uh, as you know, the Bioc or any of the crosses that you see, it's pretty straightforward. Okay. Um, but you know, what you can expect to see, you know, or what I've noticed in my individuals is when you're looking at the babies, you've got the, the really dark or black, um, you know, border markings or dorsal markings, right? <laughs> so, you know, those are going to go blue. But the other thing that I like to look at is uh, around those markings, you'll notice that the background color, the red background color, mm-hmm. um, if you notice that there's like a, a darker shading or maroon shading that goes around the triangles, and then when you get down to the flanks, maybe the uh, the shading's a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I've seen in my collection is all the animals that have that, that darker maroon goes blue, usually. Okay. So um, that's kind of what I'm looking for, too, in a lot of my animals that I'm holding back is, you know, it's great if you get really strong nice black dorsal markings, but it's also that other stuff going on in the background that you want to pay Mm. attention to, to see if um, you're going to maximize the blue potential out of them. Yeah. I I sort of followed a similar path with trying to figure out how carpets were going to turn out. I would just hold back everything (laughs) and just take pictures of them each shed and then you study the pictures and say, Oh, okay, this, this, I look for this, for this. And you know, it's somewhat, Somewhat reliable, not yep. always, but you know. The other thing I've noticed too with this locality, specifically, I'm not sure if it's the same with everybody, but I would assume it is who has Manaquari. Uh-huh. Um, that the the animals that I have gain blue with age, and you know, it's not like a hormonal blue with a female. They just tend to get more more blue as time goes on. So hmm. you'll notice, like on the individual scales. There'll be a portion of it that's blue, and then just over time, that tends to increase, so the animal becomes more and more blue. Um, another thing I've noticed in my collection that has been happening is um, uh, Manaquari also can have a fair amount of white uh, speckling along their dorsal pattern, and the individuals that I have in my collection um, – they develop a few of them at the color change, but then as time goes on, they gain more of it in time. So I've got animals that are roughly four years old and like just in the last year or so, um, they've definitely gained more white scales than they did when they were uh, little babies. So that's another you know interesting thing that happens with these. Yeah. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh man. 
that cost still sick. <laughs> you can't get rid of it, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's been it's been what three weeks now? Oh my yeah, god! Oh god! Yeah, yeah. it's a it mystery illness that everybody. Yeah, in. it yep. just won't go away. <laughs> oh my gosh! Is there um is there other localities that you know uh, you would be interested in? Uh, breeding into the Manaquaris or are you just strictly st- I, I guess where do you fall on am that? I a purist no yeah, yeah, yeah. no okay no right. I like doing both um yeah. I think it's important to have uh, a collection that you're uh focusing somewhat on locality projects mm-hmm. but then also on the hybrid and, and crossing projects too specifically with green trees um I think it just adds a lot more fun uh, yeah. to the whole thing and and um, the outcomes uh, can get, get really wacky <laughs> yeah uh, this past yeah last year I produced some really wacky stuff that uh, has been really fun to watch uh, you know raise and, and uh, change uh, but specifically like the Manaquari right now um, you know if I can I'm gonna keep it Manaquari to Manaquari and as the the collection grows I will uh, cross them out a little bit too just for the hell of it and see right. what I can produce uh, I've got one individual that I purchased as a, uh, a Manaquari but it turned out to actually not be it was a cross mm-hmm. and it looks like it was a cross between a Manaquari and a Bioc. Mm-hmm. Um and it's maintained a lot of yellow into adulthood um, but um, you know, there, there's a lot of potential there when you start taking an animal like that and then crossing it into some other things and you get some really wild stuff that pops out. So, you know, that's, that's where the fun really begins. And then for me <laughs> specifically, the Manaquari stuff, I, I want to maximize the amount of blue uh, right. on the animals. If I can, that's the only thing I'll be doing with the, the like the straight uh, locality stuff. Gotcha. Is it, a, is, is that why the Manaquari it's, and again, this is just my, perception and i could be wrong but it seems like that that's one of the lo- go-to localities when you're doing designer stuff is it for the blue does it does it throw the blue into those pairings yeah i would say that manaquari is a good one to introduce into designer projects specifically for that mm-hmm. um you know you can um you know get some individuals that are really strikingly beautiful with a lot of blue and if you're looking to add some new genetics into a project that's a great way to go um, you know, it's just their availability is, is so low. It's, it's hard to, you know, snatch them up. They're yeah. as rare as hen's teeth. A lot of <laughs> you know? Yeah. It puts you in a good spot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't know why, I guess everybody was chasing the, you know, it's the same thing they have with carpets, chasing the morphs and not necessarily going after, you know, the, the locality stuff. And then, mm-hmm. You know, it's all cyclical, right? You know, yeah. Every, yeah, everybody breeds this and then there's none of that. And then everybody switches to that and then there's none of this, you know, yep. so it just keeps going around and around. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It just seems like going forward, I think, um, you know, locality availability, I, I doubt that it's going to get better. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, I think it's only going to yeah. get worse with time. So mm-hmm. if anybody's thinking about jumping into green trees or things like that, you should definitely like as part of your projects, focus on a locality while you can yeah. and, and grab them, you know? Yeah. Um, the, uh, yeah, you, not only do you have the importation issue that, but it seems like, I don't know. I don't see a lot of imports coming in at all. Am I wrong? Outside there? of Beox. You know, yeah. Okay. And I mean, I got to be honest, I don't really look that often as to like what's available for, for import stuff. I've pretty much, you know, closed the collection and just working with my own stuff now. Mm-hmm. Um, but, 
Yeah, it just it's not like it was, you know, six, eight, ten years ago at all. Yeah. It changed a lot. Right. Uh, green trees, I think primarily what happened with them is, you know, you had the, the facility there in, in Papua New Guinea, the Bushmaster farm that was doing a lot of, um, you know, locality pairings and things like that. And, and um, you know, their head guy unfortunately passed away. And it seems like ever since then, it's just yeah. never been the same, you know. I remember that when that, yeah, yeah. I remember that. Um, interesting. Um yeah, I'd like to get, I think like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I just don't see, I guess I, I, I'm not looking in the right places, um, but I just don't see like a lot of just, you know, like, like a locale, like I, I'm looking for, I, I, that's how I came across your site again. And I was just like, oh yeah, I haven't <laughs> yeah. talked to him in a while. I was like, look, yeah. he's got these amount of quarries. Okay. Yeah. That's one. I'm looking more for like the actual species, subspecies type of thing. I know that's like probably not cool in the Condro world. I don't know. Some people <laughs> like it. Some people don't, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, for a while you were really trying to get some Rockies, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, uh, can't get those anymore. Mm-mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you think, exist, uh, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Do you think, Dave, that it's true that what Eric's noticing are are these animals really just not there to be found, or is it a lot of kind of you have to know somebody? They're not going to be posted on the internet, you know, backroom type stuff. Yeah. Well, are you talking like specifically imports or just captive bred stuff? Oh, um, just the, the different localities in general. Yeah. I suppose. I mean, generally the, the locality stuff, the, the, um, the supply has been imports. Right. And yeah. it's been, I think, a really slow train for people to hop on in terms of picking up locality projects. I think by and large, most people didn't pay a lot of attention to that and were just mixing things together. Right. Um, and um, so I think just because of that, locality-specific type animals have been hard to find just because nobody was really focusing on them uh, right. as much as they probably should have been. Right. And then uh, then with COVID and everything else that happened, um, you know, the supply chain got all messed up. Yeah. And it still doesn't seem to have repaired itself uh, overseas. So, um you know, the availability of, of import, uh, baby, um, you know, locality specific stuff with a good variety evaporated. And, um, you know, some people think that's never coming back, uh, but who knows, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. It's weird when you see more carpet pythons coming in from Papua New Guinea than you do green <laughs> yeah. trees, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I remember in the, you know, 10 years ago, it was the opposite. I'm looking everywhere I can try to find a, a you know, an imported carpet python. You can't get it. Yeah. Weren't around. Yeah. You know, but you could yeah. get, you know, green trees up the Yang. Fox, you know, Fox, Fox, Sewell, <laughs> Sarong, yeah. You know. Uh, well, what is it? Wapia? So, you know, all these yeah. weird, you're like, where the hell is Gaiapura? that? <laughs> all kinds of great places. Quick, yeah. Looking on Google Earth on your phone. Where's this yeah. at? Okay. Um, Okay, cool. Yeah, do, do you worry uh, that that shortage and perhaps the difficulty for you know the layman to actually identify what they're looking at from pictures? Do you think that it's kind of creating a, an environment where people can just say, "Oh yeah, this is a this, this is a that," and you know, 
most people just see the red or yellow baby and say, great, I guess, I guess it's worth two grand then. Um, yeah, a hundred percent. I think that, um, well, I think that's always been the case though. Okay. Um, that importers oftentimes will put labels on things that they think are going to sell better. Um, and I've been a victim to it uh, a mm-hmm. couple of times. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be very difficult to properly identify, um, a, you know, a locality as a baby. Uh, and then, only to find out that when they start going through their color change, there's a lot of really weird stuff that starts popping <laughs> up and you're like, there's no way that's right. you know a pure locality animal. Right. Um, so that definitely does happen and people yeah. do take advantage of that for sure. Uh, you know? Sounds like maybe there's not much that one can do. No, not really. Yeah. You just have to be, you know, you have to do your homework and, and do the best you can when selecting animals. But, you know, generally speaking, if, you know, you go into a pet store or something and you see something labeled as a manaquari and it's a red baby <laughs> or whatever, you're like, there's no way that, yeah. that's, you know, it's highly unlikely. Right. Yeah. You know. You probably wouldn't be there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Your best bet is to go to people that you know have been working with specific projects and have a good reputation and, and you can trust them. And that that's the way to go if you know you're trying to jump in. Do you see do you see more like even more of the um I'll compare it to carpet pythons, right? It seems like that the new generation of people coming into carpet pythons are more into you know, I don't want to say pure, but you know what I mean when I'm saying like the species type of thing um, or localities or stuff like that, where it's like not specifically focused as much on the morph. And when I say morphs, I guess what I'm comparing it to with Greench's designers, right? You know, do you see that shifting? Is that shifting at all? Or is that, I I think it depends Um, there. It depends on um, localities. So you've got, You've got camps within the the green tree python community. So you've got mm-hmm. people who uh, they love Biak, and that's where they put all their focus. And, mm-hmm. and you know, and then you've got people that are into Aru, and that's where they put their focus. But then when you start getting into some of the other localities that aren't being an imported anymore or mm-hmm. not at the same level, um, it's it's difficult to find people that are you know focusing on those projects. It's they're gotcha. a lot more rare. Uh, and then I would say by and large people are into the designer stuff uh, still yeah. uh, in the it's, community because you get some really amazing looking animals. I mean, you know? yeah. yeah. It's hard I mean, to argue with it. Yeah. I mean, you know? when you got the sickness and, you know, yep. animals like yep. that, that's just like, uh, what's the one that's over in uh, Portugal? Um, mosaic. Mosaic. Yeah. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Pedro. That, that yeah. was crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, the locality stuff is absolutely drop dead gorgeous too. Um, yeah. you know, yeah. they're look at uh Ryan's um, you know, Aru's and and um, you know, the Manaquari stuff is, you know, can be ridiculous too and, yeah. and just all that's really nice. I guess it just depends on, you know, what you like and yeah. where you want to go, you know. I think in general that was always what drew me to like uh Moralia in general, just this yeah. genus of snake is kind of like there's so much variety yep. within this group of snakes that's just like holy shit. It's wild. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's what flavor really drew everything. Me the, yeah. That's yeah. what drew me into the green trees. It's just the the variety is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And then um I like not having everything figured out. 
it makes life mm. more interesting. And yeah. green trees will definitely, you know, make you scratch your head sometimes. And, and there's a lot of stuff that you have to do to, you know, get them to reproduce successfully. And then, uh, so you've got all that husbandry part of it that we still haven't completely figured out. Mm-hmm. Uh, although it's, it's pretty good now. Um, but then when you start pairing them together and reproducing them, that's when you, things get really exciting because you just have no idea what's going to come out oftentimes, <laughs> you know, particularly if you're doing designer stuff. Yeah. Um, it just makes and even the whole when thing, it's out, you got to right? wait. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 So it's to me, they're like the perfect uh, snake to get into because, um, you know, they're, there's a few things about them. One, they're small, which mm-hmm. to me is really important. Um, mm-hmm. You don't you don't need a lot of space to keep them. the The husbandry is actually very easy. I think a lot of people are still afraid of them uh, because mm-hmm. they've heard a lot of horror stories. But um, there's been so much work that hobbyists <laughs> have put into them uh, yeah. that you know a lot of the kinks have been worked out, and you know the success rate of keeping them is is gone up exponentially. Right, and um, so. Um, you know, they're small, they're really easy to keep. They, um, you know, as far as like cleaning their cages, these things go to the bathroom like once a month, you know, <laughs> right. so that part's great. Right. And, and then really, you know, you just have to make sure you, you're keeping them well hydrated with clean water. That's pretty much the one thing you have to do on a very regular basis. But, um, you know, yeah, I hear, I think that's where I screwed up a lot when it can, when it comes to green trees is the, yeah. the hydration part of it, you know, um, I think, I guess at the time when I was keeping them, the typical practice was, you know, once a week, you know, changing the water bowl type of thing. Well, you know, I mean, if it was messed up, then you do it before, but, you know, yeah. that would sort of be your routine. And uh, carpets do fine with that, but yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't know. I think sometimes you, there's just shit luck too, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, particularly yeah. if you got, I don't know what you got originally, but if you got uh, imported babies, I did. You know, uh, it's a roll of the dice. Yeah. Uh, every, I have a, um, I do my own fecal exams and things here. So when I brought my animals in, I was doing floats and just checking the collection as I was, you know, bringing stuff in and, and screening them for things. Every single animal that I brought in as a baby import had protozoans and nematodes in there. So, uh, it's just, you know, something that, you have to pay attention to when you're bringing them in. A lot of people don't do anything. They just let it ride and they turn out fine. But then there's the occasional animal that, you know, maybe it's a little bit stressed, maybe, you know, because the water changes are too infrequent or who knows, but right. they just can't handle it and and they drop dead. And, right. uh, you know, to me, um, I, I look at green tree pythons, maybe they're analogous to like keeping discus fish kind of. Okay. Um, they, you know, discus are, are known to be very temperamental and hard to keep, but when you get the parameters right, they're bulletproof pretty much. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. um, you know, I think the same thing goes with green trees. Once you get a few minor things in place, uh, then you should be rock solid. It shouldn't be difficult. And the only time that you may run into issues is when you try to breed them. That's when things start going kind of hairy. Uh, that seems to be, uh, Justin Smith's, uh, mantra is like once you get them dialed in they're they're easy you know yep. yeah yeah so is that uh from the the earlier point with hydration is just frequently changing the water is that kind of your strategy with, with that or is there anything with spraying soaking and you know any any of that yeah i generally what i do is i try and make sure that they have clean fresh water a couple times a week 
So mm-hmm. that's, you know, twice a week, go through, give them fresh water, okay. unless it's been soiled. If I, I go through the collection yeah. a couple times a day, and if anything's messed in their bowl, it gets changed immediately. Uh, or if they've messed in their cage, that gets cleaned immediately. Right. Um, but yeah, the hydration is is very important. You know, they're rainforest animals, and, you know, they're they're used to getting rained on and, and drinking a lot of water and having a lot of water availability. So it's quite important for them. Um, I spray occasionally. Okay. Um, and, uh, but primarily it's making sure that they have nice fresh water uh, available. Um, you know, they're, they're just like all the other snakes that we keep. The second that you put fresh water in there, they know it's fresh. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when you'll notice them coming down to drink and that kind of stuff. So it's, it's pretty critical to make sure that you're on top of that. How about ventilation? Yeah. That's that's critical too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all of my cages have a lot of ventilation in them. And what I've done in, I use ambient heat, uh, in, in my snake rooms. I don't have individual, uh, radiant heat panels in any of the cages. Uh, the only time I do add supplemental heat is when I've got gravid females and I, I'll give that to them, uh, until they lay. Mm Uh, but I also just make sure that there are plenty of, uh, ventilation holes, uh, or screens or whatever in the enclosures that I have. And then the way that I, I run the room is I use those, um, those fans that you would have to dry floors. Uh, you know, they're, okay. I, yeah. I forget what they actually call them, but they, uh, they have a very um, specific uh, flow of air that comes out and mm-hmm. you can reposition it, you know, angle it any way you want. And I actually hang those from the ceiling and I have ah. it grab the air from the ceiling with the, with the thing pointed down at an angle. So it kind of bisects by room at an angle and it's constantly churning over and I've got the, um, that's genius. uh, And I've got the floor, (laughs) I've got the, the oil filled heater on the floor directly below the fan unit. So the heat comes up, hits the fan and just gets pushed down and, and circulated through the room. So there's a lot of air movement in my snake rooms because I use that. Um, you know, so yeah, you know, I think it's definitely important to make sure they have good airflow on top of it. Yeah, that's I think really that's cool. Yeah, is it like one a of those an oven? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> is it one of those like I, I think I have one at the floor at my store. When it rains, you have yep. to put it on the floor and it like sits flat. Something you can cut it. It's yep. kind of got like a round end on this side. That kind of thing. yeah, it's okay. it's round on in the back and then it's it has like a square opening in the front. So I might have to take that for work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it worked really well. You yeah. guys don't need this anymore. Eric, why are you drilling holes in the ceiling? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really a good idea. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you do husbandry wise? Um, how about With heat? Uh, in terms of the, you, you know, you mentioned ambient, but yep. I know, uh, one of the things that I have heard a lot with green trees is that they were perpetually kept too hot. Um, yep. Historically, where do you, where do you fall on that? Yeah, uh, that was definitely the case. People were, you know, keeping them with like 90 degree hot spots and things like that. Uh, and then, you know, after listening to Daniel Natouche and, and seeing all the information that came out in like the last decade, um, you know, you, you learned that, no, they don't, they don't live like that. And um, so what I do is I run the room during the day. It's roughly between 82, maybe to 84 in that range. Try and keep it around 82. Okay. Uh, and then at nighttime uh, during the summer months, I'll do a slight temperature drop only by a couple degrees uh, for nighttime. Uh, and that's pretty much how I, I run the room. And I, 
they don't need a, a temperature gradient or anything like that. Uh, mm-hmm. And they, they do great. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know I wasn't in Papua New Guinea, but when we were in Cairns, I couldn't get over how humid it was. Yeah. And I see you got that big fish tank behind you. Yeah. <laughs> These rooms, it's great for the snakes, but it's almost not tolerable to be in here. You know, <laughs> really? Like, um, yeah. Cause it's like, it's yeah, like, it's like a, super high humidity and it's in the 80s and it's like, wow, it's, it's steamy in here. But yeah. it's nice. Uh, you know, I'm in Maine and it's the dead of winter. This is a great place to be sometimes. <laughs> you know. That's awesome. Oh, wow. So yeah. you're, you're struggling. You would struggle too. Like, well, you probably would struggle worse with the dry heat. You know, from the house yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, and that, that's why I'm. I have these guys behind me. So I, I've got two snake rooms, and they both uh, I run them the same way. So I've got that floor fan that recirculates all the, the air in the room, and then I have fish tanks in each room with um, uh, aerators in them. So you're pushing room air through the water, uh-huh. and then I grow live plants out of the top. So all of that is contributing to the humidity wow. in the room, that and it works so like cool. a charm. It works great. <laughs> And plus, you get the added benefit of being able to tinker with fish and stuff too. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, as somebody that just I just did my first live planted aquatic setup in the last year or two. I'm nice. very impressed with what's behind you. It's not easy. <laughs> no, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You have like your own little ecosystem going on in your. Yeah. Room. <laughs> That's pretty cool. <laughs> That's the main rainforest. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> Wow. Okay. All right. Um, what about, I guess, uh, since we're on the subject of uh, just how you overall keep, what's your, what's your approach with feeding? You know, I know there's a lot of, there's a lot of different takes on, you know, most yeah. rats weekly, yeah. you know? Yeah. I think uh, first off, I think people are, are tend to be ridiculous in this hobby. <laughs> uh, they, they get, you know, they act like just things leave are it carved. there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> things are carved in granite, and you can only do it one way, and and that yeah. sort of thing. And it, that's all bullshit. Um, you know, in the wild, these guys they're eating rats, so you can feed them rats in captivity. You just need to make sure that they're sized appropriately. Right. And then the other thing is, you if you're doing that, you just need to make sure that you're not, you know, don't have them on a seven to ten day feeding schedule. That's not how they're supposed to be, you right. know, feed them. And then, um, you know, you wait a long time before you feed them again. They don't need to be fed uh, on uh, high frequency, uh, particularly when you're feeding something like, like rats. Right. Um, so, you know, me personally, what I do is I, I feed adult mice mm-hmm. only because that's the way I started. And I, there's been no reason for me to change. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I could, uh, feed rats if I wanted to, but I just, you know, never felt the need. Right. Uh, and then the way I go about it, because, um, you know, everything for me with the adult collection is gearing towards breeding season. Mm-hmm. So I try and, and, um, run everything around that. So, uh, the way I do it is like, um, maybe in spring to mid summer, mm-hmm. um, I feed, on a fairly regular basis. So females, I'm probably feeding them once every couple weeks, males, okay. maybe even less than that. Uh, and then, uh, come mid summer, I, I begin a fast for all mm-hmm. of them. So, uh, I'll stop feeding altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, the males I'll continue to feed periodically, but the females I don't. Um, 
and the, the males I'll keep feeding them, but it'll be at a less frequency than what I was doing before. I just, I eyeball it. If someone looks like they're not maintaining good body weight, I'll throw them a meal. Right. Um, and then, um, I'll do that fasting, uh, starting probably July, maybe early August. And I'll do it till about October uh, is when, uh, the length of time that I do it. Mm-hmm. And then once I I'm finished with that fasting cycle, I'll start kicking in with, uh, regular feedings with the female specifically, uh, small meals. Um, and I'll hit them pretty aggressively. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes if I'm really trying to get a female, um, to, to go that year, I'll even feed them like twice a week, uh, mm-hmm. again, with very small meals, um, but feeding them on a, on a regular basis. Uh, and then, uh, what I, what I do, uh, which is another important part of these guys, cause they don't go to the bathroom that frequently. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's just a symptom of us keeping them in captivity. Um, you know, they're not getting hit with rain. They're not able to roam around as much as they do in the wild. So they tend to hold on a lot longer than you would like. Um, so when I'm doing that rapid feed cycling with the females, I'll go ahead and I'll run them through a rain chamber after they've had a couple weeks worth of feedings in them just to make sure that I'm clearing them out and they're not building up. Uh, and then, uh, that, you know, gives them an opportunity to, to clear out, but they also take advantage of that and get a, a really long drink while they're in there too. Most every time I put them in there, they spend a lot of time drinking and then, uh, then they'll go. Um, and then, uh, I will continue that feeding during that breeding cycle as I'm pairing. So I'll, I'll, you know, introduce the male and I'll, uh, try and, and, you know, get the female to keep accepting regular meals. And, and I'll do that unless she's starting to look like really obese. Um, I'll continue that process, but if they start looking chunky, there's no need to continue it. They've got mm-hmm. enough body reserves and everything else that should be there in order to get a successful clutch out of them. So, you know, if I see that I'll, I'll, uh, you know, I'll ramp way back on the feedings and just kind of watch them and, and then I'll, I'll keep them together, uh, the whole time until, uh, you know, I see her ovulate and, and or go off feed and then eventually, uh, nice. ovulate. So, so it sounded like the uh, the fasting period coincided with you said earlier you were turning the temps down a little bit at night during the summer. Um, do you purposefully correlate those two things to try and spur a little bit of a breeding cycle? Is yeah, that- I, okay. I forgot to mention that. So um, I my approach on getting these guys to reproduce was, you know, some people do feed cycling. Some people do temperature cycling. Some people have a light cycle. I'm like, why not do everything? So, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it works. I've, I've, had, I've had really good success breeding these guys. And I think yeah. it's because I do that. I, I do a really good feed cycle. Uh, and then when the, the winter months come, I increase that nighttime temperature drop. Uh, from a few degrees to, you know, maybe instead of being at like uh, 78, 80 degrees at night, I'll drop it down to like 75, 74 degrees. You know, it's not a huge drop, but it's still a drop. Right. And then uh, I'm in Maine and, you know, we have a pretty uh, substantial change in the amount of daylight uh, throughout the year. And, mm-hmm. and both my, my snake rooms, they've got a window that goes to the outside. So I get you know, nice. a natural light cycle. I don't plan it. It just happens that way. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it influences, you know, them being successful or wanting to breed or not, but it's there. 
And um, so, yeah, that, that's how I do it. I, I throw everything at them. It's kind of a shotgun approach. <laughs> I, I heard a talk one time and the, the guy that was talking about it was talking about how when snakes, you know, just, just like anything, right. You're, you're affected by the, the light cycle as far as like when you're going to sleep, certain yeah. hormones are put into your system to make you sleep. And then, you know, the opposite happens when you're awake. Yeah. So I never thought about it in that type of way. You know, like I, I never thought about that way in terms of snakes. Yeah. Chemically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess so. You know, like yeah. underneath the, beneath the scales. Right, ah, right. What's what? <laughs> some people know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that that is an interesting point. Know, just right, a because, weird, yeah, weird thing I was thinking. The reason why I saying. say I don't know if the light cycle really does impact them or not uh, mm -hmm. is because you know they come from the equator. They don't really get a light cycle there, so it's not something that they would naturally experience. But I think when you start throwing variables where, you know, uh, any kind of environmental changes, I think tend to be a cue to them that, Oh, you know, something's different now. And, you know, um, it might be a good time to reproduce. You know, I, I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I mean, I know the idea of like, it's 12, 12, you know, at the, mm -hmm. at the equator, but I, I guess that's where I was, was going with it is sort of like, but they're still releasing those hormones. So people that, don't even provide light at all, let's say, which yeah. I don't, you know, if you're keeping them in some kind of rack or something like that, um, which I don't think most, in a room even then they're still going to get, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're going to get some type of light, right? Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm, my brain was just going in a hypothetical, that. Sorry. like purely dark room forever <laughs> though. Yeah. That yeah. might, you might run into yeah, problems. Yeah. <laughs> Scratch that. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So you kind of follow a season then, right? I, yeah. I definitely do. Okay. So my, my breeding season, uh, is I start pairings around October mm -hmm. and I'll continue doing that until I start getting results, which usually happens at the beginning of the next year. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll start okay. seeing some, some things happening. Um, you know, this year I've got, um, you know, they're not all timed perfectly together by any means. Um, but you know, generally, Come January, uh, I should have a female or two that ovulates or, you know, is heading in that direction. I think I took this picture from your um, Facebook page, but that female is ovulating, right? Yep. Yep. She did. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Okay. She ate and the you, discus fish. Yeah. Right. <laughs> exactly. I saw that picture and I was like, I don't know if it's just the angle or whatever. I'm like, wow. No, so green tree pythons Good. are well known for having pretty substantial ovulations. It looks like a lot of times they swallowed a loaf of bread or a football or something. Yeah, that's it just amazing. It looks incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're keeping them together even when she's, when do you separate them? Yeah. So right then and there, she ovulated, he's out. Oh, okay. That's right. when so I do it. Just the ovulation. Yeah. And are you team nest box or team just put moss and some cork on the floor? <laughs> yeah, I do things super simple. Uh, my nest box is a six quart shoe box with the cool. lid with a like a, a two inch hole cut in the lid. And I fill it with dry sphagnum and I, I throw that in the cage after they do their pre-lay shed. 
And uh, the females that I have been really good about seeking that out and camping out in there. Um, generally, uh, when mine have their pre-lay shed, it's about 16 days later when they lay their eggs. And uh, within a, a couple days after that pre-lay shed, they're roaming at night looking for a place to camp out and see if it's suitable for them to, to have this clutch. Mm. So I'll, I'll put that six-quart shoebox in there, and, and uh, they'll go in, and they'll utilize that. Nothing fancy needed. It works like a charm. Right. That's great. Yeah. You ever let mom keep the eggs? I haven't yet. <laughs> no. Um, it's one of those things where I'm like, well, I'm sure it's cool. Um, but I just feel like it, it puts a lot of stress on the female and unnecessary stress. And, you know, it would be purely for my enjoyment to see that. And I don't see the need to, to put them through it. You know, some people think that there's a benefit to having her incubate the eggs and there, there may be, um, but you know, I've had enough good luck with, you know, raising them artificially that I, I haven't taken that plunge yet. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair. You know, yeah. I, I, I th- it's probably all just, um, you know, my experience with maternal, again, this is with the carpets, but yeah, they, they look terrible afterwards. Yep. I don't know. Awful. I mean, they seem to be a bit bigger, um, but it's so hard to tell when you're doing like, you know, a, you know 10 clutches to really have any kind of like substantial yeah, I, data. I don't, you know? I don't think they are I mean, from yeah. Yeah. what I looked at and yeah. talking to, Professor DiNardo at Arizona. Right. Um, in that episode with Nick that will never be posted, apparently. But yeah, yeah it's interesting, yeah. right? Because there's also the there's also drawbacks to to letting mom do it in captivity yeah. outside of her body condition. Sure. Um, if even you know, if the temperatures are even a little bit off, she will choose uh, temperature or humidity, she'll choose to asphyxiate the eggs. Uh, to keep temperature or humidity where she wants them. And, and mm. that can have negative consequences. Um, so yeah, yeah. Yep. you got to be yep. dialed. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, 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 it's one of those things. I think it's cool to see. Yeah. You, you did, Dave, you said it perfect. It's kind of like, yeah, it's cool to see. And you know, makes a nice picture for the Facebook yeah, <laughs> <laughs> or a book. Right. <laughs> right. But uh, you know, it's not uh, something to swear. I, I nothing, would, nothing against anybody that does that. You okay, know, I'm not, yeah, yeah. not throwing stones at anybody by any yeah. means. But totally you gotcha. Know, me personally, I, yeah. I think too. Like, do you think? Do you think that? Like, I, I kind of have this feeling that, like, why the carpet people are more likely to do it and the condo people are less likely to do it is because of the stress factor, right? Because you already have. I mean, to me, it just seems like, and again, this could just be my experience, but I think you said earlier, it's like you can get them dialed in rock solid, but then as soon as you start to breathe them, it's where you can run into more trouble. Obviously, that's because of the stress that you're putting them under for the breeding. Um, And it just seems like they would, they um, handle it differently, I guess. You know, I don't know if it's just because their environment is more stable, you know, Um, and where carpets are more, you know, Carpets are just more robust. You yeah, know? maybe. They're, yeah. they're, a ro- they're a more robust animal when compared to a green tree. Green trees are easy to keep in captivity, but the, the fact is that they can be a little more sensitive to things. So mm. I think, you know, if you're 
jumping up into the green tree world and you want to start keeping them, you just have to be a little bit more on point with your husbandry. Uh, mm. They don't tolerate uh, neglect as much as some of the other snakes do. That's right. really the the main thing with them. Uh, and then, you know, the females, um, you know, they – uh, some of them can look absolutely haggard after they lay their eggs and they look the, like they're on death's doorstep. Mm-hmm. Um, so I couldn't even imagine allowing that female to try and maternally incubate the eggs. It would be a huge stress on her. Yeah. And then, um, you know, couple that with the fact that some of these animals are incredibly expensive yeah. and you know, you, the rarity you aspect. That risk, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. All of that. So, um, you know, well, I put unnecessary, you know, uh, yeah, chances you could take with cl- hatching the clutch. Yep, with something so. I mean, I definitely wouldn't you know, do it if if I was hatching out you know twenty five hundred dollar babies. <laughs> like, right. so, yeah. no chance. Not, not doing it with the blackheads. <laughs> God, they'd eat their own eggs or something stupid. I swear. Yeah, <laughs> they probably would. Right? They probably would. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Um. So. I, 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 what's your approach with the eggs? I mean, I know I have this uh, picture that I'll, I'll put up that I found, sure. which I thought was just really cool. So you can explain to me what's going on in the. Um... I tend to do it a little bit different from everybody else uh, right okay. now. Um, so my incubator itself is just a big cooler baiter. So I use a big igloo cooler as my incubator. Hmm. And okay. uh, with heat tape Old school. and I built some platforms in there and I have a water well in the bottom of the, the incubator. Uh, and then I also use an aquarium air pump to trickle uh, a steady supply of fresh air into the incubator uh, at all times. And then the eggs, the way that I, I prefer to do it is I use these uh, Cambro food storage containers with the mm-hmm. lids that they come with. And I incubate them directly into vermiculite, just like you used to do 30 years ago with, with everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the only difference that I do is that the, I don't do a straight one-to-one mix with the water and the vermiculite by weight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I use a little bit less water. So it's maybe like a, uh, you know, 90% or 85% uh, of a, a one-to-one, you know, for the water ratio. So I go a little bit less on the water mm-hmm. and then I bury the eggs, maybe 25 to 30% up the height. And, okay. and then my egg boxes themselves, uh, I've got a, a hole on one end that's always open, a small hole. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they have, uh, fresh air, uh, is able to go into the a box at all times throughout the whole incubation process. And then, um, I tinker year on year with my incubation temps. <laughs> so, um, generally speaking, 87 degrees is a safe place to be to incubate mm-hmm. these eggs, but I've been dropping the temp the past few years. Uh, this last year I did it at like 86.5 and then this year, I'm going to do it uh, more closer to 86 degrees. Um, and the whole point on that is just to allow them uh, a little bit slower development time um, and to, um, you know, uh, don't rush them out of the egg so that they can fully absorb all the yolk and all that before they hatch. That's pretty much how I go about it. And then that thermometer, that's a, that's a pretty important thing that I think a lot of people uh, mess up on. Uh, with with incubation uh, is getting their temperatures right and actually um, 
knowing what temperature they're actually cooking their eggs at. Mm -hmm. There is a shit ton of variability in thermometers, particularly ones that you just buy off the shelf or from Amazon. They can be off by a Mm -hmm. couple degrees even. Um, So uh, if there's one thing that I want to give as a tip to anybody that's looking to get into this and breed them, spend the money on a NIST calibrated lab thermometer so that you know when you get it that it's actually been calibrated and the temperature that is reading you're going to have faith in that and then you can use that as your standard to dial in your thermostat that's running the incubator um, I think that's pretty important and specifically anybody who's using <laughs> like uh, those those um, that is uh, a fantastic guns, tip <laughs> those can be way off the heat guns are horrible so you just got to be really careful the ones and, with uh, the little sniper red light like you're, you're right. telling me that's not right <laughs> right <laughs> there can be a lot of variability uh and you know be prepared to spend some money on so, a on a lab calibrated thermometer it'll cost you a couple hundred bucks but in the long run it's worth it that is yeah. very interesting but yeah. if you're hatching out you know even $500 animals it's worth it <laughs> yeah i mean it's well worth it. Yeah, and, and you know you see a lot of people <laughs> struggling incubating green tree python eggs. Yeah, I was, and yeah. I think there are two main reasons for that, maybe okay. three. Uh, one is I I don't think they really know what temperature they're cooking their eggs at, so okay. they could potentially be hotter than they think they are. Okay. Um, the other thing is um, they allow their eggs to get wet one way or another, and these mm-hmm. eggs can be very sensitive to getting water droplets on them. Um, so if you're using an egg box, you know, uh, you want to probably have it tilted so that if any condensation forms on the lid, it can roll off before it drops onto the eggs themselves. And then um, you also want to make sure that, you know, something isn't wicking the water from below. If you're using a water well or like a sim container, uh, make sure nothing's wicking up. In, in condensating on the eggs. Uh, I've seen a lot of people who have struggled where, you know, the, the top of the egg looked great, but the bottom, there's actually condensation that's been collecting mm-hmm. there and, and kills mm-hmm. the egg. Um, and then the other thing I think is is having a, an appropriate amount of fresh air circulation uh, available to the eggs as they're going through the whole process of, of growing. That is what stood out to me most about your setup. I, I've never heard of anybody running the tube of like an aquarium aerator to facilitate gas exchange in the incubator. Did you think of that yourself? And how long have you been doing that? I, I think I thought of it myself. It could be some, I saw it somewhere. I honestly don't remember. That I, is I've done it really smart. <laughs> yeah. So I just, I put a little valve on it so that I'm not pumping a ton of air because obviously you're trying to maintain temps. Uh-huh. Um, and it's just enough so that every, all day long, 24 hours a day, there's a trickle of fresh air that goes into that incubator. Yeah. Dang. I'm going to do that. Yeah, yeah, it works well. Yeah. <laughs> so did yeah. you drill a hole for the tubing? I did. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Through the side of the, the igloo right, cooler. And, yeah. I mean, we know that the gas exchange is important for eggs, yep. but most people aren't actually doing anything about that except yep. maybe opening the door every now and then to you know, yeah. Yeah, check yeah. on the lid or something. Right. Yeah. yeah. And in yeah. my I when I was thinking about this, I was like, I want to make sure that I can supply them with fresh air. Uh, but then you're also, you know, how do I, how do I balance that with making sure that I'm not drying them out? 
right? Mm, yeah. So uh, because my egg box are ventilated and I want to make sure that I'm not, you know, uh, desiccating the air and, and causing sure. issues for the eggs. So that's why not only do I run them in a, a moistened substrate, but the whole incubator itself is a wet incubator. The entire bottom of the cooler is water. Do you right. put so, your air stone in the water? I don't. Okay. Um, I, I don't have the need for that, okay. but what I, I do have a, a computer fan mounted on the inside. So there's a lot of air circulation going on in there. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, you know, I just have the, the air pump, you know, uh, pumping air directly into the air, into the incubator. I love it. That is yeah. very creative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I like that a well. lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, what's the, uh, what, have you, have you noticed anything, um, What's the time frame when you've been dropping the temps from when they hatch from when you had them at higher temps? Is it obviously yeah. a little longer? How much longer? Yeah. So uh, when I was running at about uh, 87 degrees, give or take, maybe uh-huh. you know, 87.1, whatever, um, they were taking about 49 to 50 days before they okay. would hatch. And then when you drop the temp by a degree, it's going to take another, you know, three days, four days, uh, for them to, to hatch. But, uh, also too, with my collection, uh, I've noticed that they don't all hatch at the same time. So, mm-hmm. you know, I've got eggs all in the same egg box and you'll notice as you're approaching the time when they should start pipping, um, you'll have some eggs that are, are really dented in. So it means that they've consumed most, if not all of their yolk. And then, uh, you've got some that are still like really plump. Mm-hmm. And, um, what I like to do now, uh, when I first got going on this, and I got clutches, I would have an egg with pip and mm-hmm. I would panic and I'm like, I'm going to pip, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to manually pip all of them now right. so that I can guarantee you they're not going to drown the egg and, and they're going to hatch. That works. But what I found was that the eggs that were still really plump, those animals were not ready and they took longer to, to get out of that egg. Yeah. So now I, I, I look to make sure that, you know, the egg definitely has dented in a fair amount before I'll, uh, think about manually pipping. Mm-hmm. Otherwise I'm going to let it ride until okay. I start seeing that change. It's usually only by a, a few more days that you'll, you'll see them do that. Okay. Do you have a, um, you know, this is something that, I often think about that. I don't know if it's the amount of eggs in a box and what's the size of the box. Do you, do you, yeah. So in my collection, because I'm dealing with primarily Maniquari type animals, they're mm-hmm. all on the smaller side. So my mm-hmm. females are pretty small. Okay. Um, they're definitely below a thousand grams. If I were to guess, I don't weigh them, but if mm-hmm. I were to guess, they're probably around 800 grams roughly. Okay. So they're not big animals by any means, and they've all been very consistent. I tend to get about 12 to 13 eggs in every okay. clutch, regardless of the female. Right. Um, and so what I do is I, I forget the actual size of them, but they're these Cambro boxes. I would guess and say they're uh, probably 15 inches long, maybe by 10 inches wide. Mm-hmm. And I think they're like five or six inches deep. Okay. Roughly. Right. And, uh, and I can put the whole clutch in one of those boxes in one of those. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And then, you know, okay. They're pipping out or you're, you're cutting them out, you know, depending on, and, and once they're all out, are you taking them out individually as they come out and setting them up or are you wait until they all hatch out then? Yeah. So, um, when they do start hatching, um, 
I will remove them mm-hmm. um, periodically throughout the day. If a new one has come out, I'll go ahead and, and get it out of there and, and get it into its own six quart six quart shoe okay. box. Right. Yep. Probably with some cool perching, perching, yeah, in those shoe boxes. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Yeah. <laughs> how has that? Um, how has that experience been with designing these things while working with them? I mean, I must be. Do you are you constantly evolving ideas uh, when it comes to that? Uh, not lately. So when I first okay. got started, yes. Um, the, the best way to, to go about these things when you're, you're trying to design stuff is to design things that you're actually working with, uh, so that, you know, when, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, you know? So if I (laughs) am working with green trees and I see something where I'm like, boy, I really wish I had something that did X, Y, Z, that's when I'll, you know, start, uh, tinkering and, and create it and experiment with my own collection and, and dial it in. And then, uh, I've come up with a suite of products that, uh, work really well for me or, or I've worked with customers where they came to me and said, Hey, I have this need for something. Can you do this? And, and I'll tinker and come up with it. And if it works, then I'll make that a a part of the portfolio and and put it up on the site for people to buy. Um, but, uh, that process was a lot of fun and Mm -hmm. surprising really. You know, I got into that, uh, in 2016, I think it was, Mm -hmm. and it grew exponentially and, and I'm pretty much doing it full time now. Um, so I, I I do that. That's fantastic. Yep. And, uh, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. I love, you know, I, I, I just love when people sort of push, push keeping reptiles into the future with the technology that we have now, you know, yeah. like I, I think that me and Owen used to argue about this all the time because he would be like, Oh, if it's not broke, why well, have to fix it? You know? And it's like, <laughs> Oh my God, man, there's so much we don't know. What are you yeah. talking about? Yeah. <laughs> you know? I think that's my least favorite phrase <laughs> yeah. yeah it's no fun being stagnant no you know? well and then you know it's a false binary yeah 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 it, it, it's- you know and, and it's funny too you know you the you know along those lines like advancing husbandry like uh uvb you know how uvb has become like the the biggest thing since sliced bread you know with yeah. with all animals in captivity and yeah. uh when i started my collection uh I think I started this in like 2012 when I started getting green trees. I decided back then I was going to try supplementing with UVB and, oh, okay. and I've been doing it uh, since then, not on the whole collection, just on a handful of individuals. And I can tell you this, I have seen absolutely no difference whatsoever <laughs> in the okay. animals that have been under UVB versus those that uh, do not get any of it. Right. Um, you know, Maybe there's something that they get from it, but there have been no, um, there's been nothing that I can pinpoint yeah. as being uh, something that benefited from that being as part of their husbandry. And, you know, I did it for a few reasons. One was, um, you know, prolapses in, in baby green tree pythons are incredibly common. Yes. Uh, and that's definitely something that I've experienced in, in my collection uh, a handful of times. Every year, I've got babies that uh, will prolapse, unfortunately. Hmm. Um, and, you know, back then when I was doing heavy research and trying to figure out how am I going to do all this and what are the things to look for and knowing prolapses is one of the things. Uh, I had read an article uh, where somebody interviewed uh, Vladimir over at mm-hmm. the Bushmaster facility. Yeah. And, and at that time, they thought that the the root cause of it for them was that the uh, the um, 
there was not enough calcium being put into the yolk for the eggs to huh. uh, develop the neonates properly. And they said what they saw was that when they were doing fecal exams on the babies that prolapse, they saw uh, uh, a larger amount of shed teeth in the, in the fecal exams. So they thought that uh, mm-hmm. they were deficient in vitamin D. They weren't holding teeth. They were shedding them. And then those would get bound up in the intestines and cause a prolapse. So my thought was, well, I'll supplement the females with, with UV, UVB mm-hmm. and to try and boost their vitamin D levels. Uh, mm-hmm. And I also uh, periodically, I do vitamin supplement uh, these guys too, periodically mm-hmm. when, when I'm going through the breeding process. Um, that didn't solve that problem uh, at all. Uh, okay. <laughs> I saw no difference in prolapsing on animals that were getting calcium and, and uh, UVB supplementation versus uh, clutches where I didn't provide that at all. Um, and, you know, since then I I've modified what I think is the root cause. I, you know, hydration, yes, can play into that, but I think that plays more into adult animals that prolapse, which is way more rare. Right. Um, the babies prolapsing, I am almost convinced now it has to do with the, uh, the diet that we provide them in captivity, feeding them pinky mice. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no roughage. There's no fiber. There's nothing there to help facilitate moving that through the intestine. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if it had hair on it, that would certainly help a lot more. And what I've noticed is when, when an animal, you can tell when an animal is potentially going to prolapse, they start, you see diarrhea mm-hmm. everywhere in their enclosure mm-hmm. yes. after you feed them. And what that tells me is they're struggling with passing, uh, that mm-hmm. food item that you gave them. Right. And and it's not coming out as a nice solid bolus and or whatever. And, mm-hmm. you know, they, uh, and I think it's not just that. I think it's a combination of that and then perhaps a developmental thing with individual mm-hmm. animals. So, uh, whatever the connective tissue is that you know, holds the intestine in place against the, the, you know, the body maybe mm-hmm. isn't as robust in some babies, uh, and combine that with this shitty food item that we give them, it creates a scenario where they prolapse. And mm-hmm. I think if we were to either, you know, come up with a, the ability to feed them their natural prey, uh, mm-hmm. easily, uh, so lizards, uh, or, uh, my strategy right now is I get them started on pinkies, but I transition them to uh, small fuzzies as quickly as possible. Okay. Um, like oh, it almost looks like it's too big of an item, but if the baby's feeding aggressively, I get them on to small fuzzies. And generally at that point, I don't have any issues with prolapses afterwards. So okay. that's, that's where I'm like, okay, I think that's the root cause on it. Um, you know, uh, Cause I, you know, everybody for years has been, it's hydration, it's hydration, it's hydration. And sure. my babies, all their egg boxes, you know, they get fresh water a couple times a week. There's always water on the lid. There's always water on the sides and right. I know they're hydrated and right. still <laughs> prolapse. So what else could it be? You know? Right. And, and to right. me, I'm just like, it's, it's their food. It's the fact that we're feeding them pinky mice that they just have a really hard time passing it. And some individuals aren't developed well enough to be able to handle that or get past that initial hump in development. That's, that's my yeah. thought process on it now. That, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. I mean, when people talk about the pinkies specifically and incompatibility with 
you know, hatchling snakes. There's the part you're talking about in terms of roughage with the, you know, lack of hair, lack of a feather, lack of a scale, anything yeah. like that. But then they're also just full of this bolus of milk, which, you know, is yes, per- completely tailored for a baby mouse. You yes. know, <laughs> not. There was it's a good very, discussion about that on online not too long okay. ago, where where people yeah. were talking about you know some people are like oh yeah you know the the milk's great it's 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 more it's fat it's protein it's everything else, and then <laughs> you know uh, you got people like Terry Philp they're like uh uh-uh. uh you know uh-uh. they, snakes aren't digesting that no the way you think if you, I'm half if Chinese you, you ever heard of lactose intolerance in right. humans like <laughs> <laughs> so that brings up a good point right like and this is something that I want to watch going forward that if I'm feeding pinky mice and if I have a choice, I'm going to select one that doesn't have a white belly. I'm right. going to select one that's empty because mm, if yeah. you are introducing something that could give the animal diarrhea, you're just compounding the whole problem. Right. right. And there goes so your hydration. Be, right. <laughs> yep. So all of that yeah. I think is playing together, uh, causing could, these prolapses. I could definitely see that as yep. somebody that has never had baby green trees, but it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, that's the only thing I can think of in terms of process elimination. You know, it's not water. I'll tell you sure. that right now. You know, my it makes water. sense. Yep. You know, yeah. I, I think I ran into that. So it, to sort of just throw a little tidbit into what you're saying, I, I had um, baby brettles and I got them. And same thing, I noticed the diarrhea around the cage. And I was feeding them pinkies because they were so small. Yeah. And they one prolapsed. And I was like, what? <laughs> I, I I don't understand this. Yeah. Right? What? And Nick Nick, Nick told, told me, me I, nothing could go wrong with this species. <laughs> no, he, told me, he told me that he offers his bread eye um like a hopper fuzzy, like mm-hmm. a really, really tiny hopper. And I thought that was more along the lines of, uh, you know, just the idea of it sort of, you know, moving around or jumping around or whatever that you would if you're feeding it live, you know, um, if you have gotcha. a tricky feeder or something like that. But um, yep. I don't know. I, I, maybe that's part of it. And maybe he doesn't even know that's what it is. But I, I just remember that. And I'm like, man, I had a brettle prolapse. From, what a bad keeper yeah. I am. What the Jesus. hell? What the hell are you doing over there? <laughs> well, and, and there could I mean, be variability. 2009, so yeah. I mean, <laughs> but still. Just like in people, there's some of us that if they take a sip of cow's milk, you know, they're going to need a new pair of underwear within the hour. And there's some yeah. of us that can handle it just fine. There might be yep. variability in these baby snakes as well. I wouldn't doubt it whatsoever. Another thing I've noticed in clutches that I've produced, and I've also heard this from other breeders, where you'll get a clutch where – and this will all be in the same season. So you'll Mm -hmm. have one clutch. None of them will prolapse, and they're fine. And mm-hmm. then you'll get another clutch where you'll get a run of them. All of a sudden, you'll get a whole bunch run of them. with the runs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's why I think uh, it has to do with something with um, you know uh, the development that they went through. That something just isn't robust yet, mm-hmm. and you're feeding them the wrong food item. So you're creating a scenario where things aren't going to go well. And there's yeah. no way you're going to know that until you start feeding them. And right. unfortunately we're really limited as to what we can feed them. Mm-hmm. Um, but that may change in time. Are know. they too small? I'm not sure to, to potentially eat like the head of a button quail or something of that nature or just no I, shot. I, I, 
Yeah, they're tiny uh, when they're born. So really like a red hot pink. Yeah, uh, about can it. Can look like a decent sized meal for them. Gotcha. So you, you got to be, you know, you got to be careful. Wasn't there a photo? I can't find it. I looked for it everywhere. Yeah. There's a photo where they're eating moss. Like Congo. I haven't seen it, but I, I heard about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I wonder if it's... Uh, you need to start you know, breeding moths. Yeah. <laughs> it's not necessarily true. Um, but yeah, I, you know, and then I, I don't know if you guys saw Matt Somerville posted the wild ones in the, in the, in the bush down below, which would, I, I mean, I don't know. I've never been there, but being in from Australia, there's a lot of skinks and stuff running around. So I'm, yep. I'm, I'm assuming that's what they would be eating. That they are. Yeah. yeah. Why don't we just produce skinks? I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, there was another podcast recently where people were talking about um, crested gecko babies uh-huh. actually work pretty well, I guess, uh, oh, for okay. getting finicky eaters to eat. I haven't personally tried it, um, but it might be one of these things where, uh, you know, if you've got like a really expensive clutch, mm-hmm. you know, it might be yeah. worth, you know, putting together a small colony and, and trying it and see. Yeah. They can be pretty prolific too. Yep. I mean, yep. yeah. it, it sucks when you have to wait to incubate eggs for a feeder, but right. <laughs> yeah, as far yeah. as geckos go, Cresties will yep. pop them out. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't there, what is it? The tiny little day gecko that where the uh, female, um, she just, you know, she'll just keep pump. She's parthogenic and she, they just keep pumping them out. Morning geckos do that. Morning right. geckos. Yeah, that's yep. it. My sister has, she has, yep. there's like a big jar of them. Those or something too that that'll do that, but yeah, yeah. I, like, I don't remember who it was, Eric, but it was somebody on one of your Herp History episodes in the last year or two said they would re- they would raise pictus geckos for that for feeder purposes. Mm. I don't remember mm. if it was uh, was that Ron Saint Pierre? Ron Saint Pierre, maybe. I, yeah, that that rings a bell. But yeah, yeah it would be good. I, I've heard people do it with leopard geckos, crested geckos, that sort of thing. And um, I think it also too, I, I personally tried feeding some frozen thawed baby skinks uh, mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. and had zero luck with the babies taking it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it could be also that that probably needs to be a live food item. Yeah. Uh, they probably cue in on the movement yeah. uh, a lot, which really helps get them going, you know. Totally. Is, is that a technique you use to actually get them started just in general? Are you sort of like herky jerky, that kind of stuff? Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. So uh, the way I go about it is um, I, I've changed what I'm doing with these guys uh, over the years. It used to be that if I had one that wasn't taking food items right away, I'd beat the hell out of them until I get them to, to strike. I tried to get them angry. Uh, I, I never liked that. I really felt like I was just putting a lot of stress on them just to uh-huh. get a really shitty meal into them. Um, so I just decided uh, the last couple of years that if I've got an animal that is a runner or is shy, and those are the ones that are the real problem ones, right? Mm-hmm. If you've got an animal that's striking and being aggressive, you're going to get it to eat. Okay. But the ones that tuck their head or the ones that the second you touch them leap off the perch and are running away, those are the real problem childs. Mm-hmm. So um, I assist feed those guys okay. right out of the gate. And okay. I know a lot of people that are like, oh, you know, it's, you know, you're putting too much stress on the animal. I'm telling you what, I can 
knock off a mouse tail or the hind leg of a mouse and I can grab that snake while it's still on the perch and before it even knows what it's doing and getting that thing in its mouth. And then next thing you know, 30 seconds later, it's eating it yeah. and and I'm done and I move on to the next animal. Right. And most of them, like 90% of the animals that I do that with within a few weeks, they're taking pinky mice on their own. And then I'll get an occasional one where it's seven months. I'll be doing that. Okay. And, and then just one day you'll know it too, because you'll walk in and you'll go by their cage and all of a sudden they're reacting to your movement uh-huh. and they're in a hunting position. They're, they're called alluring. They're doing all that. It's like, okay, somebody flipped the switch. This one's <laughs> you know, ready to go. Right. So you go in with a pinky mouse and they, you know, nine times out of 10, they take it. And it's just, it's an interesting thing. I don't know why some of them are like that, but some yeah. just need more time. Yeah. And my whole thing with the assist feeding is I want to make sure that they maintain body weight and even mm-hmm. better if they gain a little bit of weight over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all I need. And then it's just a waiting game at that point. Yeah. And they all turn on. And I don't, I don't stress whatsoever about getting baby green tree pythons to eat anymore. None. Nice. Because it works. Either yeah. they eat right out of the gate or I assist feed them and they're going to eat eventually. And it's not a problem. It's I like the blackheads, right? At all. <laughs> it's like the blackheads. Stupid <laughs> yeah. blackheads. <laughs> yeah. But that's, that's, that's great because I remember in the early days of NPR, that was like the thing of like, you know, everybody taught, oh my God. Yeah. I remember Buddy Buscemi telling me like, oh, I can't believe if you have one clutch of green trees, you're going to be busy for days trying yeah. to feed these things. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Some people still really stress about it. I'm just yeah. like, you know. Once I started doing the assist feeding, uh-huh. and for anybody that's getting into this and doesn't know, you know all the terminology and that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. I think it's important to differentiate this. Sure. I'm not yeah. force feeding these snakes. That's drastically different. Yes. Um, you know, you're not putting a food item in their mouth and then shoving it all the way down their gullet until it gets to their stomach. All I'm doing is I'm putting a food item to the back of their mouth, right? So that, um, and it's also either a piece of a mouse tail with the hairs pointing out of the mouth. Uh, or it's the, the hind leg, uh, of an adult mouse that I've cut. So you got a ham hock with bone and that kind of stuff, a little <laughs> bit of fur and the fat. Right. I put that in and I just try to get it in there. So it's something that they can't easily spit out. Right. And then, um, and it's really quick and really easy. And then once that's in there, they'll probably panic for a few seconds and race mm-hmm. around the enclosure. But then after a few seconds, they realize like, oh, this isn't going anywhere. I, I, I might as well just eat it. And that's right. what they do. Right. And it's, I don't think it's very stressful on them whatsoever. No. Particularly no. compared to beating them up for a half hour with, you know, <laughs> smacking yeah. them upside the head and right. all kinds of stuff to try and get them angry. I, you know, yeah, I don't do it. Yeah. Uh, 100%. That's great. Yeah. What's the, I, I know you talked about your feeding, you know, parameters with breeding and whatnot, but with babies, you know, are, are you going weekly? Or are you going bi weekly? What's your, what's your approach? Yeah, definitely weekly. weekly? Probably about every okay. five days. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is is um is there a time frame to where you would, you know, as we were saying that some of them develop differently, is there a time frame where you start to worry that this wasn't hasn't you know eaten yet? Is there a certain like I remember I had baby carpets that went 6 months without eating and they were fine, you know. Yeah. But I've had other ones that like they went 3 weeks without eating and then they just they died. So yeah. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts there? Well, I, I've done it a bunch of different ways. So uh-huh. I used to try feeding them before the first shed. 
Uh-huh. Uh, and I had success with individuals doing that. I now wait until after I didn't, I don't really see the need to, to race, to get them to eat immediately. Sure. And, um, and then once they do that first shed, I'll go ahead and try feeding trials, uh, immediately after that. Okay. Uh, and then, like I was saying earlier, if I get one that is, you know, not, uh, being a team player, they go on to assist feeding immediately. <laughs> feeding I don't wait. Way. Okay. Yep. I know some keepers, they'll wait, uh, you know, they'll really play the long game on those babies to get them sure. to eat and they don't stress it, you know, and, and I'm sure it works for them. But for me, I'm just like, this works and this is the way yeah. I do it. You yeah. know, is the fact that you were trying to get them to, to absorb as much yolk as possible tied into the idea of waiting till after they shed so that they could absorb that yolk? Or is that just not really, no, not really. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. And Great. as far as um, the baby setup, you said you just basically water bowl, the perch, and yeah. just kind of six quart tub type of deal. Nothing. Couldn't be more simple. Yeah, yeah. I don't use a substrate. I just use a standard Sterilite six quart tub, water dish, uh, eight ounce deli cup, one of my perches in there, and, right. and that's it. Uh, nothing else. And I... My personal opinion is that's the way you should go, uh, particularly if you're a new keeper and you're just getting into these guys. Right. There's definitely been this huge push towards bioactive uh, mm. across the whole community. Right. And uh, I'm not I'm not really against bioactive per se. I, I'm not sure if it really is the best fit for green trees, specifically the bioactive part. Cause I don't mm-hmm. really know what it is that you're trying to accomplish by having like a cleanup crew and, and stuff like that with, uh, you know, a, a bioactive soil and, and those sort of things. Green trees go to the bathroom so infrequently, you know, that's really not a concern for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, my point on this is that when you're a new keeper and you haven't kept green tree pythons before, um, there are things that you just don't know and you won't learn until you've been keeping them for a while and you've had a lot of time uh, doing observation mm-hmm. so that you become intimately familiar with this is how this animal is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And when I see this behavior that I've never seen before, that might be a reason for concern, right? And yeah. if you're a new keeper, you're not going to okay. see that sign and recognize it. Mm-hmm. And so if you're keeping them in a really elaborate setup as a small baby and these kind of things start going a little bit wrong, that's where green trees are different from carpets and a lot of the other snakes. They don't handle um, the stresses as well. So once they start down that slippery slope, it's a mm-hmm. lot more rapid for them than it is for other species. So right. I think if you're a new keeper, your best bet Go sterile, keep them in a really simple setup until you become really familiar with them and the animal is fully established. And then once you get your feet wet and you want to start experimenting with husbandry and, and how you want to keep them and because now you know what the signs are to look for, right. um, you know, you're going to be much more successful that way. And I think people just need to exercise a little more patience. And that's the name of the game with green trees anyway, is patience, <laughs> yeah. right? So don't rush into things. Do it the way that has been shown to be successful for a very long time now until you get, you know, really comfortable in, mm-hmm. in understanding what you're doing. Then go ahead and try experimenting with stuff. That's that's my advice to people getting into this. Yeah. I'm curious why no substrate, why no paper towel or anything? Just I don't have the make need. it easier. Right. Yeah. Okay. The babies, right. they go to the bathroom so much. 
compared right. to the adults. <laughs> like it's like almost daily, if not every other day, they're going okay. to the bathroom. And my routine is I keep them in that. And then I've got a utility sink with blazing hot water and with a hose. So what I do is when, when it's time to do a cleaning, I just take the perch out, set them aside. And I bring the, the tub over and I just give it blast a really it. Yep, blast <laughs> it with hot water. And then I'm done. To me, that is the best thing about yep. green trees is that you can just <laughs> take the perch yep. Put yeah. it on the table. <laughs> They're not going anywhere. They're not going nowhere. No. Adults, <laughs> birds, put it on the yeah. table. <laughs> Take a couple pictures while you're waiting for the tub to dry or the case exactly. to dry, you know? Yeah. And they're just sitting there chilling, you know. <laughs> Any other snakes are going Oh, my God. No. Yeah. They're <laughs> running all over the joint. Oh, that's yeah. great. That's great. I did used to do that when I had the Uru. I would just put her on the table. Yeah. yeah. That's it. See how long she'd go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Was it the one? Was it you that had the one that got out and went up to the top of your? No, no, it wasn't you. Well, I had a bread lie do that, but if you're talking about no, green trees, green it wasn't tree, me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it just perched up on like the on uh, like curtain rack, curtain rack or something, you know, <laughs> just right up there. That thing. Okay. Um, nice. All right. Uh, let's see. Where are we at time? Okay. Um, you said I want to circle back to this because I know I, I've heard. I think you've talked about this with Justin before. The rain chamber. Mm. Are you still doing the same setup? Like what's, I know you used to do it with the shower, right? Or something like that. No, the, no. the way I do it is I, I have one of the large Cambro tubs and all mm-hmm. I have is a mist King, uh, hooked up to it with two nozzles okay. on, uh, opposing ends facing each other. And, um, and then I'll put a, uh, one of my standalone perches in there and I'll mm-hmm. transfer the, the female from her regular enclosure into this. And, and then I just allow the mist King to do its job. Um, okay. you know, and I, I will let them, and I use a five gallon bucket, uh, mm. with water that's like 78, 80 degrees. Okay. And, um, yeah. I was going to ask just, about that. Yeah. <laughs> and, I'll, and I'll hit them with that, uh, until they go. Generally speaking, uh, they'll go probably within the first 10 to 15 minutes that I put them in there. Uh, sometimes it'll be an hour or so before they do. Um, mm-hmm. you know, if I put them in and they're more interested in drinking, that's when they'll kind of hang out for a while and, and just enjoy the shower and, and get some water and that kind of stuff. And then eventually they go. Right. Um, you know, I, I, some people are against it. Um, you know, they don't see the need. I, I personally, uh, my philosophy on this is they're an animal that comes from the rainforest. They're used to getting rained on. I think people really shied away from it because of the whole respiratory infection, you know, worry and, and that sort of thing. And I think we went too far in the other direction yeah. and uh, we keep them very dry or at least a lot of people keep them very dry. And what I've noticed is that when uh, you've got a, a tropical rainforest species that is used to a seasonal fluctuation in rain during the dry season, are snakes easy to find? They're not, no. right? They're camped out and they're not moving a lot during the dry mm-hmm. season, which means they're not going to the bathroom a lot either. And I think right. that's what's happening with green trees in captivity oftentimes is that we keep them so dry, they don't get stimulated and they don't move around as much uh, okay. versus when you wet them. And years back, this got me thinking because somebody put a video up where they showed the activity of their animal at night in a dry enclosure versus one that they sprayed. And mm-hmm. the amount of activity was exponentially different in the one where it was sprayed at nighttime. Wow. So that tells me that it's a stimulation for them sure. that they, they look for. It's a, it's a cue. So 
and it could be a number of things. Uh, one of the theories is that they're just more active and that's what makes them go, which certainly could be part of it. The other part of it is that um, while it's raining, it, it could be that, you know, when they, they drop a load that um, <laughs> it's going to be a lot more difficult for a, um, a predator to smell them out mm-hmm, and right. to find out where they're camped out. If they just went to the bathroom, right. Um, you know, a lot of animals you'll notice, go to the bathroom when they're hit with rain, like tortoises and things like that respond uh, to that stimulation. So uh, it's just my own personal thing. Mm. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Right in the shower. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, so that's just something that I've incorporated in, in my husbandry and I really only do it with the females that I'm feed cycling generally. Okay. Um, and one of the things that I would like to do going forward is I would like to introduce some some rain nozzles into the actual enclosure mm-hmm. and set up a drain system so that I could, you know, once a week, just let it rain for a couple hours, yeah. you know, and then let it drain out and dry out and, you know, that sort of thing. So I think that's part of our husbandry that uh, would really benefit from people experimenting with and seeing if they can improve things even more. And I know there are people who spray their animals on a regular basis, and they say that they don't have any issues with their animals holding. Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, that just seems like either you spray or maybe come up with a methodology to rain on them periodically would be very beneficial, I think. I'm sure it varies amongst keepers of green trees. But when we talk about spraying, to your point earlier, just making sure that we're clarifying stuff, like are they using like one of those pump? things and spraying the animal like that yeah, is that typically the way to go rather yeah, or than just like or a, a hand sprayer one of the oh, other okay so either one yep. okay yep i was just wondering if it would be i don't know it seemed like for me especially when i'm doing the geckos and stuff it's kind of like you're spraying them and it's like i don't know it'd just be so much easier if it was one of those miss know, kings like, or something. yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, that kind yep. of thing you just pump it away. And <clears throat> I was all, you know, do you do too much? I kind of think, I don't know, you tell me if I'm crazy about this. I think that like it got me thinking just for myself, right? And when we go into the winters up here in the Northeast, it typically gets very cold. We're running the dry heat. Mm-hmm. Um, and that dry heat dries out my lungs to where mm-hmm. my, all, you know, everything in my whole, you know, system is just like uh, and yeah. i wonder if a lot of those respiratory infections were coming from the fact that they were too dry which seems to be counterintuitive to the thing you know it's usually you would think oh it's too wet but it's mm. really wet and cold that really cause issues it's not yeah it's it's wet and cold not keeping the enclosure clean yeah mm-hmm. and then you know, there was a long period of time where we didn't know Nido existed. Well, yeah. And so you had that mystery element going on in the background that people were like, Oh yeah, don't spray. You're going to get a respiratory infection guaranteed. And it was probably a lot of that happening. Sure. Because they were cold and wet allowed that virus to, you know, do it, do what it likes to do. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, good point. Cause there are a lot of keepers now that are spraying on a regular basis and I don't see anywhere near the number of people complaining about respiratory infections that you used to see no. a few years ago. Yeah. They're no. spraying healthy. Animals. That's changed a lot. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> spraying healthy animals. Well, yeah. yeah well, <laughs> that's a good one. I think it's the same thing with the bioactive stuff. Like I think that like somehow, somehow this idea that bioactivity as 
gone into our hobby and they, people think that that's the pinnacle of keeping and care. And like to me, what you're saying fits more in line with what the animal actually needs, even though it doesn't look like the fancy jungle. I'm not against the fancy well, jungle. I like yeah. looking at the fancy jungle. Fancy yeah. jungle is harder to keep up with. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a whole other skill set you need to, to develop, right? Yeah. In, in order to do it right. So just to, to add a little more onto that topic, um, sure. you know, that whole bioactive, um, you know, is there even really like, a good definition of what bioactive is, right? So, you know, my thought process process is bioactive works great for dart frogs, right? And things like that. Mm -hmm. uh, green trees, I don't think you need to go to that same extent, but you can still get the same benefits of having a beautiful yeah. uh, planted enclosure. You just have mm -hmm. to go about it a little bit different. You know, you don't need that active substrate with the isopods and everything else. Right. But what you can do is you can set up a substrate of like dry leaf litter. Mm -hmm. And you can strategically, you, you can create things to house live plants uh, so that the snake can't like uproot them and, and that sort of thing and, and, and create the appearance of a jungle, but is also something that's also really easy to keep clean and maintain. Yeah. And you avoid the other pitfalls that, you know, don't work well with green trees. They don't need to have a wet, soggy soil and, and that kind of stuff because that's not where they live their life in the wild. Right. right. They, they aren't, they're uh, suspended above the soil for only a few hours, you know, at, at night. And then they're roosting up in the trees during the day where there's a lot of fresh air, there's sunlight, there's, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. So I think by doing a bioactive in a small enclosure, which all of them are compared mm -hmm. to the wild, yeah. I think you're potentially setting up a scenario that, you know, you may get away with it for a while, but there's a chance it's going to catch up with you too. And I would rather nice. not, you know, gamble with that. Yeah. But you can get something that looks like bioactive, like identical to bioactive, but right. isn't. Right. You know? And I think 100%. that's where people need to start focusing and experimenting with. You can yeah. really create some cool stuff, I think. Yeah. And, and just species specific as well. You yeah. Know? Like yeah. to your point, what's going to work for green tree isn't necessarily going to work for Right. You know, something else. So, yep. Okay. Um, I wanted to, uh, I guess we're, what are we at? 140. Okay. Let's talk about these. <laughs> I had the name down until now. <laughs> Wamina Arubiox. Yeah. Wamina Arubiox. Yeah. Yeah. What that's cool been name. a, that's been a, yeah, that's been a really good clutch, uh, this year. It, they hatched out really big and robust. Yeah. Super dark red. Uh, every animal in that clutch ate immediately uh, <laughs> when I started feeding trials. So it's one of the best oh. ones that I've had yet. And, um, and again, the, the, the Wamena Arubiac, um, the, the male I bought as an unchanged Wamena from Bushmaster. And of course, you know, that's a term or a locality that I think most people know. It's not really a place that they're collecting animals from. Um, so, you don't really know where they're originating, uh, mm -hmm. but they'll label them as Wamena. Uh, but they're going to be in the same, you know, rough uh, clade or whatever as like Jayapura and, and those types of animals. So they're going to have that white tail or a green tail as an adult. Um, they're still going to have blue markings on the dorsal 
Um, is that Pulcher as well or no? No, that's okay. that uh, Uterensis, I think it okay. is. Okay, Uterensis. I can't remember exactly the name. That um, works for me. <laughs> yeah. So that that's where they originate from. Okay. And then the uh, – so that's my male. And then the dam, uh, I bought her – this is one of the ones where I got a little bit burned. I bought her as an unchanged Aru baby. Uh, but then as she grew up, um, Patrick Holmes put the bug on my ear saying that he didn't think that that was pure Aru. And, and when I really started looking at it more closely, you know, I, I think I tend to agree with him. Uh, even though when he told me at first, I'm like, all right, dude, you're entitled to your opinion. But I think he was right. You know, yeah. when I, when I look at him, um, you know, there's definitely, uh, there looks to be Biak influence in that animal. So I'm just saying that they're a Rubiak. It looks like it. Um, and then, um, so yeah, that's, that's what resulted in this, uh, this clutch and, um, what I'm, this is the one where I've been the most curious about to see mm-hmm. what's going to happen when they really start going through their color changes, because there's a lot going on between those two animals. And, mm-hmm. uh, it can with Wamena, there's been some really interesting results for whatever reason, uh, that subspecies or locality, when you start doing, um, species crosses or locality crosses, you can get some really wacky stuff that starts popping out. Um, and so these guys, they're still a complete mystery. They've just now started to do some of their color change. Um, but I have no idea uh, what they're going to turn into. So, Oh, that's so much fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, it's I, fun. I, but I'll tell you what, in terms of like trying to sell them, yeah. it's difficult because yeah. you don't, you don't have anything to show for it. Um, cause this is the first time I've paired them. So nobody knows what they're going to turn into. And I think people tend to be a little more reluctant to, to spend the money, uh, mm, when I they're you. like that. But, you know, I know just from looking at these, they're going to be phenomenal when, yeah. when they're adults. <laughs> I, I just know it. Um, but it's just a matter of, I got to wait, you know, and, yeah. uh, I even dropped the price on them recently just because I'm trying to get people to, to nibble on them more, um, to get them because, these animals are some of the, the, the best ones I produce yet, just in terms of being as solid as they are and robust feeders and, and, uh, the way that they look, you know, the, the, uh, the male, um, you know, some people don't think that this is a true thing or not, but, um, he's a dominant red male. So Mm -hmm. he was paired with a yellow female and every baby that was produced was a nice deep maroon red. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, when you've got a dominant red like that, whatever you pair them to, everything's going to come out red. And, um, and that's what happened with this clutch. Um, and you know, I'm just right now it's a waiting game. I'm waiting to see what these, these animals do. Are you going to hold on to a good amount of them? You think? No, I'm selling most of them. Okay. I, uh, mm-hmm. I have most of them up for sale and I have one, maybe two individuals that I'm holding back that look like just, they look just like all the others. So I just want to <laughs> yeah. see what happens. Well, you know? I can't help but notice you don't have Manaquari in there yet. So, right. you know, a- <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, maybe we can get you the NPR bump. Um, you yeah. know, I, I think like, <laughs> <laughs> reptileperch.com. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, I don't know. To me, that's always sort of the like, well, it's sort of the gamble you take with chondros, right? You you purchase a baby that you think, you know, came from crazy parents and then it turns out to be a green snake yeah. or you have two green snakes that produce some crazy looking, you know, <laughs> yeah. thing. But 
you know, with all the stuff that's going on in this, I mean, talk to me about like the future. Like if you were going to buy one of these animals to do a pairing, I mean, you kind of have like a lot of powerhouse things within that one animal that you could sort of work with designers, right? I mean, yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. You've already muddled it up. So yeah. now it's just a matter of uh, <laughs> what phenotype is going to pop out from these right. guys. And that'll help guide you as to how you want to pair them in the future. But generally speaking, you know, they're, they're technically not just a straight locality cross because one of the animals has already been crossed with something else. So mm-hmm. you're, you are, you know, you're dipping your toes into that designer realm. Um, and you know, if these things uh, develop into some really cool looking things, then yeah, you know, they're going to be great for mixing in uh, with other stuff going forward, you yeah. know? Yeah. hundred percent. Uh, now I'm excited. Don't sleep on them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> I remember in my early days, right? In my early, when I first was getting into snakes, it was sort of like this idea that, like, especially with specific pairings, and you can't find those animals anymore. And I'm sure this is the same in the chondro world as well. But, like, you know, you had specific lineages of the, the animals that were being produced at your time frame, that you're, you know, that you're in it and personing yep. animals. And, you know, they may not do that pairing again, that one of the animals may pass the next year. You, you never know what's going to happen. So like when that animal's there, you got to jump on it. Like yeah. if, if you really want to, you know, get into it, I'm not saying go and clear out the house unless you want to buy all of them. I'm sure yeah. David, you'll be okay by all means. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I think I, I, I don't know how that is with other people, but that was one of my rules is just like, if there was a pairing, or if there was something that intrigued me, or I thought that there was potential with it, I'm just going to jump on it and take it. I mean, that's how I got like 80 IJs at one point. Yeah. It's like, oh, this one looks cool. Oh, this one has a look. Oh, this one has a look. And then sometimes they didn't develop. And then other times, you know, they did. Like, I still yeah. think of that one IJ you had back in the day. Oh, my God. Yeah, it my heart. Heart. yeah, I love that snake. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you should have seen this one. Uh, Lucas, holy shit. Send me the pictures Beautiful. later. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, beautiful snake. Beautiful. Yeah. All right. I don't know. Is there anything else you guys wanted to hit on? I think, we, oh man, this is, this is a great talk. And yeah, it's know. been great. Is yeah. is there yeah, anything thanks. you want to talk about with, uh, with the purchase or any of the products non living that, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm chugging along. I'm like right out straight, uh, with those things all day, every day. Pretty much, surprisingly, that's been the most surprising thing about it. Who knew that many people needed snake perches, but they do. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it um, it has been growing year on year. And uh, I think I heard Eric you say this one time: you don't go into business, you grow into business. Yep. And uh, that has definitely been uh, my experience with this. And year on that's year, awesome. it's been growing, and and I love it. It's great. That's yeah. awesome, man. That's yeah. awesome. That's we will uh, put the links to everything in the uh, show notes. So if you want to go cool. and check out the reptile perch, you definitely can do it. And uh, I have I have some of your stuff in my nice. in my uh, baby racks. I use it for the baby carpet. I love it. You know, cool. I use them for scrubs. Uh, you know, the thing that I loved about them is that they sort of were stood up, and I used to use a paper towel roll that would oh, go yeah. across the whole thing and it was perfect because it would sit right underneath of it that's and it would a great allow idea. them to thermoregulate you know obviously yeah. you know chondras are probably staying up on the top but yep. for other snakes and pythons you could you know use yep. it it was great the only thing i'll it. add i just going back to what you're saying lucas on mm-hmm. on perches um and this is a selfish thing for me i'll, I'll ah, say it do up it. Front. Yeah. but um <laughs> 
even if the animal isn't known to be arboreal, they tend to like having things like that in their tub. Oh yeah, enclosure. So you know, if uh, if I was you're thinking about box, it, you should chuck something in there. You know? Yeah, even yeah. if it's not for me, you should put something in there. Well, you double the space of that enclosure, yeah. right? You know, yeah. now you not you have two levels. You Usable have space. Yep. Yes, and and yeah. now they can if it's you know they want to be a certain temperature, they can go up to the top if they want to be more down. You know, if you're using yep. heat tape or whatever you're using, yeah, muscles use it or lose it. We want buff baby snakes. That's what Damn David right. can help you with. And yep. the other thing that I thought was, oh my God, it was a lifesaver. I have to tell you this story. Like way back in the day, I had the, I used to, like, I used like uh, 16 ounce deli cups as my water yep. bowls, right? And I was trying to think of a way that I didn't want to use like bowls that you put the cup in. Right. So I would take the, the one deli cup and I would zip tie, I would like poke a hole in the bottom of the tub and yep. I would zip tie it. And try to get it like real snug so that the one stood there so I could just take, you know, keep it that as the the holder, so to speak. And then you made the purchase with the holder in it. Yeah. And I'm like, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes that became a pain in the ass with like yeah. pulling the tub in and out and whatnot. But, you know, that was a lifesaver. So, oh. yeah, absolutely. I thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So yeah. if people wanted to follow you, where can they find you as far as, you know, social media and stuff? Where's your- yeah. So the reptile perch on Facebook, I'm pretty active on there still. And, um, also on Instagram, the reptile perch, Okay, uh, both of those I, I use on a regular basis. Yep. Awesome. Okay. Yep. And then it's reptileperch.com. Is yep. The okay. Yep. And you can get the perches and the chondros at the same spot. You can. Right. Okay. One stop shop. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. I saw you even have uh, an enclosure available these days for helping folks out with their first, you know, maybe baby green yep. tree or something like that. Yeah. What That's I awesome. tried. To, yeah. Thanks. What yeah. I tried to do is replicate a, a single cubby of a rack. So if you're somebody who's just getting into snakes and isn't going to have 40 of them and doesn't want right. to buy a rack, um, but you want to keep green tree pythons. Uh, one of the things I probably should have mentioned earlier um, when you're, Buying a baby, a green tree from a breeder. Put it right uh, in a four footer, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> the, the best thing you can do is try and replicate how the breeder was keeping that animal to the point that you're taking it home. And yeah. generally speaking, that's in a rack where yes. in, a, in a tub setup. And green trees tend to be more sensitive to changes. And you want to minimize the number of changes as much as you can uh, when you're bringing a new acquisition home. So all I tried to do was replicate a single cubby of a rack uh, with a with a pullout tub so good. and one of my perches and and uh, a little snake hook and things like that just to try and make the transition as as seamless as possible for people because there wasn't really anything like that on the market before. So no, I, I mean I, I've been in that situation with baby carpets and the best yeah. I can tell people is find something small at target and you know, like <laughs> right. don't drill yeah. a hole too big. <laughs> like, yeah. It would work for carpets too. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All of yeah. them. Yep. Okay. So now we're, yeah. now we're sending them there. So right. thanks yep. for doing that. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> right on. All right, David, thank you so much for coming and uh, hanging out with us. And uh, thanks again, really guys. Yeah. yeah. It's a blast. Um, yeah. And in okay. place of Owen, we'll see you next time for yeah. another episode of, <laughs> Morelia Python Radio. Good night. <laughs>